This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Let's have a conversation that doesn't happen much between urban and rural voters in Colorado. The divide between them has grown, and that is abundantly clear in the 2016 presidential race. I'll speak with two women, one who benefits from Denver's economic growth and the other in Rocky Ford in southeast Colorado, who sees her neighbors pack up and head to places with more opportunity. They were both profiled by reporter Nick Riccardi of the AP in Denver. And for some context, we're going to chat with him first. And Nick, thanks so much for being with us. Thanks for having me, Brian. Why did you want to frame election coverage this way? Well, when we talk about elections, we're usually talking about the Democrats and the Republicans. And increasingly, the two parties are being defined by what's been referred to as the big sort. Democrats are moving closer to Democrats. Republicans are moving closer to Republicans. And so geographically, the country is really transforming into two poles. One of the ways you can slice it, arguably the most significant way, is in terms of population density. Um, There have been studies that show that if, if there's a certain number of people per square mile, that's the best predictor of whether or not they're going to vote Democratic or not. Hmm. So the real poles of this divide are urban areas, and by urban I mean central cities, not the big suburbs, and rural areas. If you want to kind of look at two different places that explain why people seem to be living and why the parties seem to be living in such different worlds, those are two different worlds that really are basically at, at either end of the spectrum for each party. Yeah, and Colorado is a good place to see that because of the incredible urbanization happening along the Front Range. And meanwhile, as we said, this depleting of population elsewhere in the state in more rural areas. Did you find other evidence that the divide between urban and rural Colorado is growing? Well, I think there's no question that the divide has been growing over the past decade or so. It's grown politically. There's been a lot of frustration in, in rural areas. There was a, a brief secession movement by rural areas in northern and northeastern Colorado. That's right. Uh, those failed, of course, and, and one reason they failed is that population-wise, there's been a, a shift. Increasingly, Coloradans are much more likely to be urban residents of cities than, than rural residents. Actually, we, we live in a very urbanized state. Um, the image of the rest of the country as of Colorado, and I think our own self-image of it is of, you know, big open spaces and wild west. But Mm. realistically, people in Colorado and people in the West in general are among the most urbanized populations in the United States. Almost nine out of 10 Coloradans live in, you know, the front range. So this divide is in terms of how people live, for sure. But say more about the economic divide that this has led to. So One of the uh, big things that's been happening this century in the United States is just as there's been a political sorting, there's been something of an economic sorting. And economic activity, employment, growth is increasingly concentrating in a smaller and smaller number of areas, which are urban areas. There was a study that showed that the 20 largest counties in the country accounted for half of all new business formation in the past 15 years. And if you looked at the previous 15 years, it was literally several dozen counties that would account for that. It was scattered all over the country. But now things are getting ironically more centralized in the age of the internet. 
Meanwhile, you report that as of 2014, rural areas still had not regained all the jobs lost in the recession, while metropolitan areas had. So you found two women who illustrate this divide, both in Colorado. One is Peggy Sheehan. She's a Trump supporter. And we're actually going to hear from her in a few moments. What drew you to her story in southeast Colorado, Otero County? I met Peggy in a general store, and Peggy was very gracious with her time, sat down and talked a lot about her her life. You know, she's seen the arc of that area. When she was younger, Otero County had a larger population. They had a relatively thriving agricultural scene. Nowadays, they've got less population. More people have left for the city. There are fewer guest workers coming. Stores have closed. There, a lot of um, the businesses in these towns are boarded up. And there's been an um, influx of heroin traffic. There's been a number of high-profile kind of grisly crimes down there that's left people feeling very unsafe. And Peggy's seen all this. She's also a conservative person. She was a Ted Cruz supporter initially. And she's a Trump supporter now, although she... You know, like many, I think, Cruz people who have, have hopped on the Trump train views him slightly warily, but uh, wants someone who's going to be her champion and, and is putting her hopes in him. We did some reporting in this part of the state. I remember telling stories about the closing of the pickle plants in La Junta nearby and the, the town trying to help save the GM dealership in that part of Colorado. Just signs of, of some of the decline. You also interviewed a woman named Andrea Pacheco, who we are also going to hear from shortly. She supports Hillary Clinton in this election, and the past year has been pretty good for her, hasn't it? Andrea just got married. She uh, would not have been able to get married before the uh, Supreme Court decision legalizing same-sex marriage. She bought a house, uh, not without a, a lot of kind of stress, because Denver is a very, very, very competitive real estate market. They weren't able to get the house they wanted. They had to spend a lot of time and more money than they wanted to, but they were able to find a place. And you know, they expect very accurately that prices will keep going up, and eventually their investment will pay off. Um, they're living in a place they can you know, walk to a bunch of nice brew pubs and and pleasant places. There's growth happening around them. And she sees that things have gotten better in the past eight years. So why would you hop off, you know, the the wagon that brought you here? Both it's gotten better for her own kind of civil rights and economically everybody's doing better that she knows. And so uh, Andrea is, in a way, she's representative of what political people like to refer to as the coalition of the ascendant. This is the coalition that elected President Obama. And, and these voters often are, as we said, urban. It's important to point out that it's not as black and white as saying, you know, life is miserable in the rural areas and, uh, and wonderful in the cities. The city folk have their own stuff to deal with as well, including traffic and, as you've alluded to, the really high cost of housing and, and the fact that that can push out middle-income people. But given the concentration of population in Colorado, the fact that r- really this is an urban state that just happens to have, you know, mountains in the background, does it make someone like Peggy Sheehan in Otero County less attractive in the political calculus? You know, when you're, when you're trying to drum up votes, you know, you go to where the people are. Yes, absolutely. Uh, there's no question that 
rural areas feel that they have less of a voice. As somebody said to me down there, every single person in rural Colorado could vote one way, and just if the whole population of Denver voted the other way, they'd cancel each other out. And that's generally true. But it's not as if there aren't other conservative people around the state. There are conservatives living in the suburbs, Colorado Springs. I I think it's fair to say that the people in Otero County tend to be more aware of urban problems than people in the Front Range, and particularly in central Denver, tend to be aware of rural problems and issues. And that's because, realistically, as you've alluded to in some other questions, rural folks are the minority in this state. Issues about water, for example, gets folks very excited in Otero County. In Denver, that's not just not the same. People in Otero are familiar with the idea that cities are congested and cities are expensive, um, and that there's a lot of stress living in cities, which uh, is definitely part of the challenge that urban residents face, and, and part of the reason that the Democratic Party, while it has a, a relatively sunny outlook, is worried about things like income inequality, affordability, and wages. These are all problems that urban people have. Thanks so much for being with us, Nick. Thanks for having me, Brian. Nick Riccardi is with the Associated Press in Denver. Read his story at cprnews.org. After a break, we'll meet Peggy Sheehan and Andrea Pacheco for ourselves and see about crossing Colorado's urban-rural divide this election year. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. Today, the gap, or maybe the chasm, between urban and rural Colorado this election year. Before the break, we heard AP reporter Nick Riccardi, who profiled two women in very different Colorados. Let's meet them for ourselves. Andrea Pacheco lives in Denver. She came to our studio. Peggy Sheehan lives in Rocky Ford in southeast Colorado and joined us by phone. Andrea, Peggy, thanks for being with us. Absolutely. You're welcome. What about your life has led you each to support Hillary Clinton or Donald Trump? So how do you answer that in your case, Andrea, for Hillary Clinton? You know, I think so much of my life is about the diversity of this country. Uh, I was born and raised here in Colorado. My family are uh, Colorado natives. We were living in the the San Luis Valley when this was still Mexico, and then the, the Treaty of Guadalupe Hidalgo moved the border down to the Rio Grande, and, and uh, my family was suddenly then in the United States. And I myself am also gay, and so I think just growing up in my experiences, I grew up in Colorado Springs, which is a very conservative town as well, as a minority, as a person who was gay, um, has helped to uh, form my, a lot of my opinions about the world. And so I think when I look at these two candidates the person who represents the country that I see in front of us today is is Hillary Clinton. And uh, Peggy, how do you answer that? What about your life leads you to support Donald Trump this election? Well, I can trace my family back to the Revolutionary War. My family has fought in probably every war right up to date. And when it comes to my country, I am conservative. I may not totally approve of everything that Donald Trump represents, but I certainly am not going to put someone in there who is determined to destroy our country. You know, you don't even have to rely on the American uh, news. Read Russia today, 
and they can tell you exactly what's going on a whole lot better than the lies that we keep getting fed. Let me push back a little bit on your support for each candidate. So in the case of Hillary Clinton, you had the FBI director saying that she was careless with emails that were classified. Did that give you pause in supporting her? I certainly followed that. I followed the Benghazi um, investigation as well. And I think she's admitted that it was ill-advised to use a private email server uh, while she was secretary of state. And, you know, I also know that they have found her not guilty of any wrongdoing in that situation as well by an independent investigation that was bipartisan. If you look at her whole record as secretary of state, if you look at her whole record as senator from New York, I think it's clear that she's been extraordinarily competent in those roles, that she has done those jobs well. And a lot of people have said, a lot of Republicans have said she she did those jobs well. In contrast, when we've seen Donald Trump called out on a variety of things that (laughs) can be considered questionable, uh, he just defends them. Um, You know, he doesn't ever apologize for any of those things. It's not that she was found not guilty. Uh, The FBI, in, in the case of the emails, simply is not recommending charges. There you go. Thank you. Faggy, some Republican leaders have distanced themselves from Trump, a candidate who has mocked a reporter with a disability, who criticized the Muslim parents of a fallen American soldier. Are you conflicted in, in your support for him? I have been, and I just said that. There are some things I don't um, approve. Um, I think he is boisterous, and he's also arrogant. But he is definitely no more arrogant than Hillary Clinton. And I don't care if, whether she has the, the Y chromosome or not. I wouldn't vote for this woman. The thing she has said that she will do when she becomes president, I fear for this country. So you would see a Clinton presidency as being ruinous. What about your life do you think uh, would be harmed? Well, we all know that the Social Security and Medicare Uh, monies have been stolen by the government, and anybody that has savings, 401s, they also know what has happened to those, how much they lost, and I'm sorry, I am an NRA supporter. I do support uh, our right to bear arms for our own protection. My father was a police officer. Being raised in the Valley, I have been raised with uh, very multilingual citizens all my life, and they have been our farm workers forever. I mean, we have a fa- you have family farms, but there just isn't enough people to do the work. And so, you know, let's don't make this a cultural war because that doesn't bother me. But they are trying to expand federal land. They are going to be very regulated. That has a big impact, and not only on me, but I think everyone else. When you say that Social Security would be raided under a Clinton administration, what what do you base that on? It already has been. The federal government, they have raided uh, Medicare and Social Security. They They have stolen millions of dollars from the money that my age has put in for their retirement. They have used to pay for their overspending. 
They have borrowed from the Social Security Trust Fund. Oh, you, well, there you go. If you want to put it as borrowed, they have actually stolen it. Did they put it back? No. Could you describe any positive changes you've seen in your respective communities in, say, the last four or eight years? No, not at all. We have lost jobs. People have moved out. The unemployment, I just got, in fact, I have the paper from um, July the 22nd. State and Otero County unemployment up, Crowley County down. Crowley County all happens to have a state prison. We'll say the unemployment rate peaked at more than 11 percent in early 2014 in Otero County, then dropped to four and a half late last year, and it's been uh, inching upward since then. Uh, but uh, Peggy, tell me about your work. I am a small business owner. I repair windshields. I have done this for 21 years. I would not be able to hire anyone and meet the standards of what is required to pay health insurance, taxes, uh, anybody that has more than 10 employees, I don't know how they can survive. And how many people are in the company? Me. Mm. Uh, so the, the, the health insurance requirements are not something you face directly? No, they are not. All right. How about positive changes you've seen in your community, Andrea? When President Obama came into office, we were in an incredibly economically depressed state. Um, I work in, in fundraising. So you know, when our economy is depressed, obviously donations go down. And one of the ways I've been able to sort of track the success Obama's had in a kind of slow and steady improvement in our economy has been through our ability to better fundraise. And how about personally? Sure. You know, I just married my partner uh, last month. That was not uh, President Obama directly per se, but obviously our, our presidents are able to choose Supreme Court justices and our next president will play a large part in being able to choose um, new justices in, all, in the likelihood. So I'm incredibly grateful for the progress that we've seen under the Supreme Court, too, in terms of marriage equality. Peggy, um, I understand that you see a lot of people leave Otero County, where you live. That's correct. When people leave, where do they go and, and why do they leave? Most of them are going to larger cities because uh, they are looking for better paying jobs. But uh, then they wind up, there are a lot of them homeless, living under bridges. I know two specifically who lived under bridges for about six years. Around the Denver area? Mm-hmm. Andrea, why do you think Hillary Clinton is the woman to keep, uh, I guess, your life on, on its trajectory uh, with a job? You've recently bought a home. I mean, some might hear that and think that maybe you're voting against your self-interest here by not choosing the party that would let you pay less taxes. Uh, you have a house, a steady job, no kids to support. I'm guessing you get health insurance through your employer or your wife's employer. Uh, don't lower taxes sound good. Yeah, I mean, I think everyone likes the idea of lower taxes. I don't think when you dig into these plans for lower taxes, you see the real benefits, though, for us as an entire community and society. Um, it's easier to have like those sound bites and say, you know, I can lower your taxes and affect you as an individual. Um, and I think a lot of what Democrats tend to say is, is how can we as a community, as a society, 
all help each other. And maybe that's chipping in a little bit extra here and there, although for the most part, they're not talking about raising taxes on, on people who are making um, lower wages. They're talking about raising taxes on the very, very wealthy who perhaps can afford to do that. So I, I don't see that as being um, against my self-interests at all. I see it as, as um, you know, raising us all up, lifting us all up as a society. Peggy, the same question. Why do you think Donald Trump is the guy to turn around the conditions you've talked about there in, in Otero County? Population decline, joblessness? Well, for one thing, he's been a businessman all of his life. He also knows that he does not have all of the answers, especially in the political field, because this is something basically new for him. So he's not above finding someone with the knowledge, and I believe that is why he chose the uh, vice president that he did. He also knows that the little people, which he still has a relationship with, is struggling. And he is willing to do what he can to bring jobs back to America, bring the manufacturing, the companies back to America. What do you think of the idea that as the American economy advances, it favors high-skilled jobs and that it doesn't make economic sense to employ as many people, say, in manufacturing in the U.S. or in farming? Well, you know what? Now, that's something I have seen. When you can send a tractor out into the field, put it on automatic pilot on a GPS, and you don't even have to have a driver, yeah. Things are always going to get more and more where we don't need people, which is um, kind of scary when you stop and think about it. Why is it scary? Well, all of the people cannot be scientists. All of the people don't have technical savvy. When you have the technology where that takes over everything, then how are other people going to survive? Are they going to all survive on government handouts? She's going on about how the rich need to pay more. It is the rich who have the option of leaving the United States of America and taking their money and going somewhere else. Peggy, um, I'll push back on your support of Donald Trump. It could be seen as voting against your self-interest by not choosing a party that wants expanded health care for the poor and unemployment benefits. Well, let me tell you this. My Bible says that if you don't work, you don't eat. I believe in handouts for those who desperately need them, those who physically or mentally cannot earn them. The churches are the ones who, up until the government took over, are the ones who supported, who took care of those in need. And as far as I'm concerned, the government has made a mess out of it. There are a lot of people out there who are able-bodied to work who cannot find the work. I don't care what the government statistics tell you. Unemployment is higher than what they are saying because those who have been on unemployment, who their benefits have run out, who get tired of fighting the system, who has no jobs, they don't, they're not counted in that anymore. You're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Warner, and we are speaking with Coloradans 
on either side of the urban-rural divide, which we learned earlier this hour is a real driving force in the political differences this election year. Joining us from Otero County is Peggy Sheehan, and uh, here in the studio with us in Metro Denver is Andrea Pacheco. Sheehan supports Donald Trump, Pacheco, Hillary Clinton. Andrea, I'd love to have your thoughts on what you've heard from Peggy, who is in a very different part of the state that's in a very different predicament economically, for sure. Absolutely. And I have a lot of empathy for Peggy's worldview. I have a big family that lives kind of all over the state, and I just spent the weekend actually with with them all camping. Um, And a lot of them are from more rural areas of the state. And we certainly differ in our worldviews a lot, I think, because of some of that urban-rural divide. Um, So I'm grateful to be able to have this conversation with Peggy because I sometimes avoid political topics with um, my family members because I love them and um, I I don't want to get into an argument with them. You know, I would say uh, I do think that we'll continue to see some of that urban-rural divide, as um, Peggy alluded to, you know, with, with manufacturing jobs, with farming jobs. Uh, you know, we have robots doing a lot of those things now, technology um, doing jo- the job that, that people used to do. I think that's been a gradual change over many decades of our country, and I don't think we can attribute those changes to any particular president or any particular party. There are probably many just basic facts I would disagree with Peggy on, you know, and I think some of that probably depends on, you know, if you're getting your news from Russian newspapers or from Fox News, you're going to get different, I'm putting facts in, in air quotes here, Peggy, since you're not here to see me do that. But I do think that in a lot of ways, the inclination for rural America to lean increasingly more Republican is acting against our self-interest in many cases. I think um, a lot of Donald Trump's rhetoric is really leaning in on a lot of biases and stereotypes we have in our community. And like I said, I think, you know, instead of him talking about the fact that it's really robotics and technology taking away a lot of farming jobs, he's talking a lot about illegal immigrants taking away jobs from from real Americans. Um, And I'm putting real Americans in air quotes there as well. And, And what would you say, Peggy, to what you've heard from Andrea here in Metro Denver? Well, when it comes right down to it, Let's see her go to the grocery store and find food when there are no more rural communities to provide that. I don't know. Maybe a lot of people don't realize milk comes from a cow, and she's got four tits, and it has to be milked out. So I, I will say too, Peggy, that my, my dad grew up on a farm in southwestern Colorado. My my grandpa my grandfather still runs that farm. Um, sure, I, I just, over at San Luis. I've I've been over there several times. Yes, it's beautiful. Yeah. So I, I mean I understand. I, I do know where milk comes from. I've seen animals slaughtered. Um, I understand where that all comes from. I think my point was more, you know, the economic realities are not really tied in terms of things like a, a farming are not necessarily tied to a political candidate or to a particular party. And as technology progresses. We're going to continue to see those changes. And I think at the end of the day, I'm, I'm more likely to, vi- to vote for the candidate who has done a thorough job of researching these issues and problems and really thinking out what practical solutions might be and less interested in the candidate who just you know, kind of spews off some, some rhetoric and some catchphrases um, and there doesn't seem to be real substance behind any of it. Basically, when the Democrats started, Their view is total government, and it has gotten to be more so as the years go by, especially now. Government wants to run our health care. 
And I just don't want anyone having that much control or that kind of control in my life. Do you plan to get Medicare? I am on Medicare, thank you. Medicare and Social Security is something that people my age paid into all of their working life. That money was supposed to be there to support us as we did age. That is our money put into a community, if you want to, uh, account. Andrea, do you know any Trump supporters personally? I don't know. Um, I, I alluded to the, the fact that I, I know I have family members who have different political viewpoints than I do. Mostly what I heard, though, this weekend, I would say, was was uh, some anti-Hillary s- sentiment um, and not necessarily positive Trump sentiment. Um, and I was sort of afraid to ask if, if any of them were actually planning on voting for Trump in the fall. Uh, so, no, I actually don't know anyone who was outright said, um, I'm voting for Donald Trump. Does that worry you? <laughs> that I don't know any of those people? Yeah, just that you are disconnected from that part of the country. Um, You know, what I'll be curious to see, I think, is I was just reading something that said really only 8% of voters voted for either Hillary or, or Trump in, in the primaries. Um, you know, so far it's been a, a relatively small amount of our population that has voted. And I think there's a difference between turning out a bunch of people to a rally and, and actually showing up to vote in November. So I, I'm just going to be curious, I think, to see what the true support is, I guess, on real, both sides. What the real, yeah, popular vote looks like at the end of the day. Because hmm. um, I do know Republicans. And the ones that I do know have a lot of concerns about Donald Trump and are talking about perhaps voting for a third party candidate if they can't bring themselves to vote for Hillary. Which is something Democrats are saying about Hillary Clinton, some sure. of them as well. Uh, Peggy, do you know Hillary Clinton supporters? They're in Otero County. Actually, I do. I do. And actually, uh, I did ask somebody yesterday if they knew of anybody who was better off today than what they were before. And they said, they actually said yes. And they said yes, because her husband was actually able to find a good paying job right here in the valley. Did you guys talk any further? Um, no, not as to political leans. I try very hard not to go too political, other than, you know, my husband hears a lot of it, and uh, we hear a lot from veterans, and uh, other than that, no. Do you have any questions for each other? I just would like to know where she thinks her nonprofit profits are going to come from when people have no money to send in. Uh, you know, I would be much more concerned about our economic stability with Donald Trump as president than with our economic stability with as Hillary Clinton as president. Why? So many, I, f- I find so many of his positions, you know, his position against NATO, uh, I, I just think he'll bring a lot of instability to our country. The, you know, the things that he says are, are unprecedented in a lot of ways. Let me say that he hasn't said that he's against NATO, uh, but that he wants NATO members to, I think he said, to do do their fair share. Sure. Okay. But he's talking about potentially breaking down longstanding relationships with our allies around the world, um, which is scary and I think would have economic repercussions. There's nothing about Hillary's platform that gives me pause that would I would think would create some sort of economic disaster in the way that I think Donald Trump could be an economic disaster for our country. Andrea, any questions for Peggy? 
no, no questions, I think. Um, I'm really happy to have chatted with her today. But it's it's nice to be able to have an honest conversation about these different, different, uh, different viewpoints. Well, thank you, Andrea. Yeah. Thank you very much. Well, ladies, I want to thank you so much for your time. Oh, thank you so okay. much. Peggy, it was and so nice chatting you. with you. And you too, Andrea. Good luck. Same to you. Two people who illustrate the urban-rural divide in Colorado. Peggy Sheehan lives in Rocky Ford, that's in southeast Colorado, and Andrea Pacheco lives in Denver. They were both featured in an election story by Nick Riccardi of the Associated Press. You can read that at cprnews.org. Up next, rain barrels are soon to become legal in Colorado. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. You're back with Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The state legislature fought for years over them. And on Wednesday, rain barrels become legal here. That means you're not a scofflaw if you collect rain to water your lawn or wash your car. Colorado becomes the last state in the union to allow these. Patty Mason is executive director of the Colorado U.S. Green Building Council, and she joins us with some pointers. It's not as easy as just putting a barrel on your front lawn. Welcome to the program, Patty. Thank you so much. I guess, first off, are rain barrels actually worth it? I mean, what could this mean for a homeowner? I think they're absolutely worth it. It helps homeowners get more involved with understanding how water moves throughout our system. It's a really great educational opportunity. And of course, there's some cost savings associated with rain barrels. It'll depend on who your water provider is, but we estimate, you know, somewhere around 20 bucks a month can be saved on that water bill. Um, There's also 1,200 gallons a year that CSU estimates you can save in water consumption by using a rain barrel. In wait, it would lessen your consumption. I guess it would lessen your consumption of water from your pipes. Is what you're saying? Yeah. Okay. Um, Economics. So, how much is a rain barrel? They definitely vary in cost. I've seen some rain barrels going for just shy of a hundred bucks, and as much as five hundred dollars if you want a professional to come out to your property and install the rain barrel for you. Okay, so that will obviously influence how quickly you recoup your investment. How many rain barrels can I have on my property and how much can I collect, I don't know, over the course of a year or something? Yep. The statute allows for up to two rain barrels or up to a total of 110 gallons of rainwater to be gathered on your property and then used on that same property. Okay, 110 gallons in a year? Total. So 110 gallons would be the size of your rain barrel system. And then as it's filling, you're you're using it down to water your plants and your gardens, even washing your car. So the limit is on the barrels themselves, not on how much I collect over the course of time. Correct. Interesting. And can anyone in any type of building, home, condo, apartment, have rain barrels? No. Currently, how the law was written was to allow single-family residences or multi-family residences with four or fewer units to uh, use rain barrels. Okay. Currently, commercial buildings are not allowed to apply this type of technology at their facility. Or big apartment buildings or big condos, for that matter. Correct. Why? You know, I think that this was such a contentious issue that we have to, you know, kind of walk before we run okay. in terms of um, the, the strategy of rainwater harvesting. And of course, there was concerns in the legislature about potential harm to water rights holders. And so 
I think we came up with a balanced approach that'll help, again, just kind of create an educational opportunity for homeowners. And of course, we hope to see the opportunities for rain barrels expanded in years to come. I see. So you think there will be some evolution of this legislation. And for those who may be new to Colorado and don't know that there is a somewhat Byzantine system of water rights in this state, every drop of water is legally spoken for. This is in part why the compromise over rain barrels was such a big deal and took so long. What can you use this rainwater for? So it's in the barrel, then what? Yeah, you can use it for watering your lawn, for watering your garden, again, washing a car. So uses um, outside of your home. We're not currently going to be allowed to use rainwater for any kind of indoor uses, um, such as flushing toilets, but certainly for um, irrigation and supplementing your irrigation outdoors would be how you'll see people applying their rainwater. Okay, and I gather that that was part of the compromise as well, because if you use it outdoors, the idea would be it could return to the system, to the to the to the to the land. Exactly. That's exactly okay. right. What do these systems look like? So it's yeah. not just that you put a barrel out and hope that the rain falls there. Right. Um, they attach to the downspout of a of a home. So, you know, your gutter across the roof goes to the downspout, and you'll actually take the barrel and, and just attach it right there. I've also seen some systems use chains and, and water gardens to gather the water in places that perhaps don't have a downspout easily mm. accessible. Where the water kind of hugs the chain and then lands in the barrel. Yeah, and they can be really beautiful. I'm excited to see how rain barrel technology gets applied across the state. There's so many different systems. I've been thinking of different strategies for using, you know, old keg barrels and and different ways that Coloradoans are going to embrace this technology. Yeah, I don't think of a barrel as usually a beautiful thing. (laughs) I think of it as something to hide. Yeah, when you go online and start looking at them, you'll be surprised to see how um, the technology's been developed to make it more attractive for neighborhoods and places that have, you know, Concerns about the barrel not being a, a, a nice site uh, for the neighborhood. Yeah, an eyesore. Yeah. Well, it's interesting. This was fought out in the legislature. I wonder if the next frontier is to be fought out on HOA boards across the state. Do you think that's a fight that's coming? I hope not. I think that there's always the chance that certain communities will not like the location of a rain barrel. No. But I think that... The amount of public support for this bill was phenomenal. And so I would be surprised to see anything like that. However, you yeah, know, do, do you sit on an HOA board? <laughs> I do not. OK, well, maybe that's why you're answering <laughs> in such an optimistic fashion. Help me understand how you get the barrel, the water out of the barrel. Sure. And, and start watering. I don't understand. Yeah, they actually have a, a spout at the very bottom of them. So one of the best practices that you'll want to consider if you're doing this technology is to actually lift the barrel a little bit to allow for some of that water pressure to then more easily flow out. So oftentimes a watering can will be just put underneath your rain barrel hmm. spigot and the water comes down and then you can take it to where you need to apply that water, like perhaps in a garden. But you can also attach hoses to these rain barrel systems as well and then run the water directly onto your landscape. At CPRnews.org, there's a photo of a painted rain barrel. Uh, it's got flowers on it. Someone tried to get creative. And I'm told that rain barrels cannot be banned by HOAs, but their placement and how they're 
painted Correct. can be dictated. Is that right? Yeah. So no HOA board has the authority to say you can't have this if it complies with the law. Right. They just perhaps might not want it in the front yard. I live in a community where I definitely intend on placing mine front and center so that the whole neighborhood can appreciate it and and take a look at it and and ask me questions about it. Mm. So you'll have a rain barrel? Absolutely. Okay. And then I imagine this leads to the ability to study them, because one of the big questions, of course, was whether this would affect the water... Uh, table ecosystem. And if lots of people start having rain barrels, there will be a more definitive answer to what was a lot of speculation in the debate. Yep. So there is a provision in the bill that acknowledges downstream users' water rights, and it gives the state authority to assess the issue and intervene if if necessary. So if we were to find that there's harm to downstream users during particularly dry years, the state of Colorado could potentially rethink its position on rain barrels. Though I don't think that that will be the case. I think there's been plenty of research done, especially by Colorado State University and, and other universities, to show that they're really isn't much impact to delaying the flow of water into the system. Thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Patty Mason, executive director of the Colorado U.S. Green Building Council. Find tips for setting up your rain barrel at cprnews.org. Just ahead, insults worthy of the bard. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It's Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. If it weren't for a book known as The First Folio, many of William Shakespeare's plays could have been lost to history. Friends, Romans, countrymen, lend me your ears. I come to bury Caesar, not to praise him. The evil that men do lives after them. The good is oft interred with their bones. So let it be with Caesar. That is, of course, from Julius Caesar. The first U.S. tour of the folio stops in Boulder starting tomorrow at the CU Art Museum. Michael Whitmore of the Folger Shakespeare Library in Washington, D.C. calls the first folio a sacred relic. It's one of the most valuable and precious books in the world. Two of Shakespeare's actors published the collection in 1623. It compiles several dozen of his plays, 18 that hadn't been published before his death. The Folger Library has the world's largest number of first folios, 82 to be exact, and keeps them under lock and key. Well, there's a very large bank vault door that takes two people to open and close. There's an elevator that takes you several stories underground. On this tour, the book is opened to an iconic scene from Hamlet. When you think about the tens of thousands of people who are going to come face-to-face with the to-be-or-not-to-be speech, one of the most famous speeches ever written, we want to make sure that the next William Shakespeare, the next Emily Dickinson, the next Toni Morrison has that opportunity to see this book and be inspired by it. Whitmore says even if you can't always understand Shakespeare's language, his plots remain relevant. I think he's a writer who still speaks to us today. Whether you're a leader who is making tough choices, you're Henry V and you're going to face your Agincourt. Or if you're someone who's getting bad advice, you're like Othello and you're going to have to resist because you will meet your Iago. And it's that ability, those stories, to keep speaking back to us that makes Shakespeare such a powerful writer and is the reason why we still need this writer. So the first folio will be at CU Boulder through the end of the month. The university has prepared for its arrival all year. 
Hadley Kaminga Peck has led some of those preparations, and she organized something called the Shakespeare Insult Generator. Hadley, welcome to the program. Hi, thank you so much. A Shakespeare Insult Generator, what exactly is that? Well, I kind of think of it as magnetic poetry for insults. Um, we, yeah, <laughs> it's a way to take all of the great words that Shakespeare has that are his version of the insult and combine them together to create your own insult. You're making reference there to the magnet collections on on my refrigerator, actually. I, I, do, <laughs> I, I still have those. They seem a little old school now. But um, in April, you threw a Shakespeare birthday death day party. It's yep. believed that he died on his birthday. How's that? And That's I sh- the rumor, at least, yeah. I, I should add that this year marks the 400th anniversary of Shakespeare's death. Mm-hmm. Will you share sure some of, of your favorite Shakespearean insults from that event? Oh, from that event? Absolutely. Okay. Um, we, I think one of my favorites is, Thou vain, beef-witted wayface. <laughs> <laughs> okay, wait, say it one more time. Thou vain, beef-witted wayface. Okay, so this is someone who is interested in their appearances and is not too bright. What else? Exactly. Uh, thou guts-griping, ill-breeding, elf-skinned joithead. Elf-skinned? <laughs> elf-skinned. I like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, it was, um, it was an insult to be considered to have the skin of an elf or of a fairy. I like thou beetle-headed, motley-minded, maggot pie. <laughs> It's just fun to say, isn't it? A maggot pie. So can we, could we build one together? Absolutely. How do you do that? I guess all this well, stuff so, is probably on Google. but Yes, it's easily found on Google. There's, of course, very fancy websites where you can click a button and it will generate a whole insult for you. But personally, I like the ones that give you three columns of adjectives and a noun and you piece it together yourself. Okay. Yeah. So you could have, for example, a... Ruttish plume plucked lewdster. A ruttish plume plucked. Okay, so defeathered. And what was the <laughs> yep. last word? Lewdster. A lewdster. That one who is yes. lewd. One who is lewd. Which goes quite well with ruttish if you think about it. I I, I have to confess, ruttish. I don't know what that means. Ruttish as in rutting. Rutting, like to give, like giving birth. No. Uh, like beasts rutting in the hay. Rutting. Oh, doing yes. doing stuff in the hay. Yes. Okay. I'm sure there are listeners who want to strangle me now for not knowing that. <laughs> you, you say that this insult generator can be an entry point into Shakespearean language in general. Oh, of course. Of course. I find uh, I teach a summer camp for six to nine year olds um, where we, we do Shakespeare. We do a play every week. And for, for them, speaking through these insults, they don't always understand what they're saying, but they know it's fun. And they know it's stuff that maybe their parents wouldn't really like them saying. So they really enjoy it. And once we get over the fear of what it means, it doesn't matter what it means at this point. It just matters that you're saying it and that you're having fun with the language. Afterwards, you can figure out what it means. And then you you take away the fear of Shakespeare by just getting them to speak the words and have fun with it. I seem to recall that Shakespeare invented words and words that oh, yes. per- persist today. Was that true of insults? I would assume so. If you look at his insult lists, there's so many hyphenated words that he's <laughs> clearly just putting those things together, like common kissing or hasty-witted, you know? Hasty-witted. Oh, that's, yes. That's a good one. <laughs> Do you want to leave us with one more? Uh, sure. Um, oh, thou swag-bellied, hasty-witted bum-bailey. A bum-bailey? Is that one word, bum-bailey? <laughs> Bum, well, it's a hyphenated again. A hyphenated it's word. It's a, a, an officer who makes arrests. Mm. 
Well, I've had I've never had a guest throw so many vulgar <laughs> names around. Thank you for, <laughs> for doing it with me. I'm proud to have been able to do so with you. Hadley Kaminga Peck, CU Boulder's first folio project manager. She organized the Shakespeare Insult Generator. Starting tomorrow, you can see the first folio at the CU Art Museum, where you can also make your own Shakespearean insults. And that's our show. I'm Ryan Warner, CPR News. Thank you.